mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Good afternoon, good morning, good evening, wherever you are in the world. I'm Russell Tovey. And I'm Robert Diamond. And this is Talk Art. Welcome to Talk Art. How are you, Robert? Today, Russell, I am feeling precise. Oh. Because today's guest is pretty much the most rigorous, grounded, profoundly important, in my opinion, but also in many people's opinion. Mm. I think his work is incredibly significant and will actually live on long past all of our existences and hopefully continue to bring change that's and heavy this is heavy thought provoking <laughs> yeah. um, our guest is actually laughing this is well i know heavy well you know me i'm mr ernest and you know the show we're here to talk about today is currently just opened at the new museum in yes. the wonderful place of new york which yep. i miss terribly but mm-hmm. we will get back there one day and the show is called grief and grievance so there is a reason that i'm being quite earnest and serious mm-hmm. but also i do believe his work is great and he's not artist that without doubt is making us think about things differently and bringing about social change um and it's also i would like to remember today the amazing work of the curator okwi enwaza who sadly passed away in 2019 and was the kind of thought the 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 kind of brain behind this show and the catalyst Yeah. yeah So that's another reason to be serious. But you can also have joy and humour and happiness, which is what we will bring to this episode. But we would like to welcome to Talk Art, someone we wanted to interview for a long time, Mr. Glenn Ligon. Hi, Glenn. Thank you. Hi, Robert, Russell. Thank you. Uh, Delighted to be on the podcast, finally. Uh, (laughs) Delighted to be talking about this exhibition. Where are you today? I'm in my studio in Brooklyn um, on semi-lockdown, you know, just go home, come to the studio, go home, you know? Yeah, it's like a re- repetition, it. isn't it? A lot of yeah. repetition lately, but... But if you go to the, that... the studio every day, is that part of your, like, routine? Um, I try to go every day, but some days you just can't. <laughs> just because, of, because of lockdown or just because of you no, just can't? want to lie on your couch all day you know, and yeah. think. Yeah. Um, I mean, the irony is that this various, you know, New York City isn't on an official lockdown, but it just feels safer to, to kind of limit one's activities, you know, to me, yeah. um, until more people are vaccinated. Um, but it, it, in a strange way, because there's so little 
that people want to do in public or want to do together, you have a lot of time alone. But I don't want to spend every minute of it in the studio. You know, I don't think that's productive either. So yeah, but do you have a distinction? Like if you're at home, that's not work, that's home. And then the studio's work. Have you set yourself then like parameters? Oh, it's a Kinsey scale, you know, (laughs) (laughs) making stuff on the computer. And I was like, oh, I wasn't supposed to be working today, but I guess I am because I'm thinking about something and playing around on Photoshop on the computer or whatever, you know. And then sometimes I get to the studio and there's endless hours on home decorating websites you know, home porn, as I call oh, it. Oh, yeah, Architectural <laughs> Digest, AD Online, my God, I agree with you. But also, Russell definitely shares that Yeah, you. you're a voracious reader, so that also, in some ways, is, like, pays into your practice, is, is research for you, because you mine and cull literature and quotes from literature throughout all of your work from the 80s onwards. So I guess if you're at home on the couch, you're also reading a book, right? I want to say yes. <laughs> I really want to say yes. <laughs> and sometimes that is true, but most often it's Netflix and, you know, Amazon Prime and, you know, Hulu. Yeah, uh, and, and Downton Abbey and, reruns, um, which I've heard you're a massive fan of. Uh, Downton Abbey reruns, yes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, well, let's talk about the uh, the new museum show, which you're, uh, which you're involved in the minute, which is, you know, it all comes, it feels like you you were kind of, there to, you know, um, secure its continuity after what Rob, Rob introduced about the uh, curator who passed, sadly, last year. But it felt like your involvement at that stage really did continue his message that he wanted to do. Can we talk a bit about this um, amazing show? And we've, we've got this incredible publication in front of us as well for it. Right. I'm, I'm really grateful the publication has come out and the show was delayed. It was actually supposed to open during the last presidential election, but delayed for COVID. So it's just open about a week or two ago in New York, but the publication was out beforehand. And I met Oquian Weiser, the, the curator who thought of this exhibition in, I think, 1998. We were on a panel together about God knows what, but Whatever the topic was, Opwe wasn't talking about it anyway. So he just talked about the, you know, the archive and the reception of artists from Africa and the global south. And he was mesmerizing. And so that was my first meeting with him. And we stayed in touch. And he became, you know, the curator, the amazing curator he was um, soon after that, you know, with a string of exhibitions, both in the United States and internationally. Mm -hmm. So I guess in fall of 2018, um, Oakley called me up and said, I'm working on this exhibition for the new museum. I would love for you to be my kind of interlocutor, be be the person I bounce ideas off of. And at the moment, he was the director of the Haus de Kunst in Munich Mm -hmm. and had full exhibition schedule there, but really thought this show, Grief and Grievance, was a show for America. And he had been in dialogue with the new museum for probably a year before he told me about this show uh, with the curator there, chief curator Massimiliano Giorni. And so that was my role. I was someone to bounce off ideas off of outside of his relationship to Massimiliano. 
But at the time, Okui was being treated for uh, cancer, and I don't think I realized how ill he was. Um, so we began this dialogue, and he was at the same time curating shows for the House of Kunz and getting treatment for his cancer. Um, and I went to see him in Munich in early March of 2019, and he literally, you know, received me in his hospital bed as I was walking in. He was being wheeled out on this stretcher. It's like, Glenn, he has a very, very distinctive voice and accent and way of talking. Is, and I can't really do it, but Glenn, I'll be right back. I have this little treatment. And of course, it was a radiation treatment. And half an hour later, he was back, and we spent the next six or seven hours at his bedside talking about this exhibition. Wow. Wow. Well, this exhibition contains 37 artists, all working across different mediums, addressing the concept of mourning, commemoration, and loss as a direct response to the national emergency of racist violence that's expressed to black communities across America. Right, exactly. Exactly. So it's a subject that I think he'd been thinking about for a long time. Uh, Oakley spent a lot of time in the United States, a lot of time in New York. He had many artist friends here. He raised a daughter in New York. So I think he was deeply invested in what was going on here politically, what artist friends were thinking about in the United States. So even though he was in Germany at the time, he was deeply invested in American culture and I think Prescient could see kind of where things were going, you know, mm-hmm. before the arrival of Trump, but mm-hmm. certainly was thinking about, you know, this sort of spectacle of black death that uh, was happening on greater, greater frequency during, um, from, you know, the election of Trump onward. And so this exhibition, I think, came out of thinking about those issues Mm-hmm. Um, and talking to artists too. Exhibitions come out of artworks and artists. They don't come the other way around. You know, mm-hmm. most people think, you know, a curator has an idea for a show and they just plug artists into that idea. But it's yeah. really the other way around. The, the the curators thinking about what artists are making, and then formulating their ideas about the topic of the show from what he's seeing in the field. From starters are thinking about what they're telling him about. It's really interesting to think about that, actually, because I think the the importance of listening to artists and also just generally as human beings to each other is such a key and important, you know, thing. And I I think sometimes people forget about it because it's such an important one. And I think doing this podcast for us, we've we've learned about you know listening. But how important is that within your own practice? Because if you think of the work that's currently on the facade of um, the new museum currently, which you showed for the first time in 2015, I think that was the year you made it, um, called A Small Band. And it was also curated at the time by by the same curator. So it's like a continuation of that connection too but i know it's the venice biennale yeah yeah. it was the italian pavilion yeah Yeah. and i know that this is the first time you're showing that 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 work in new york which is your home and um also is is significant politically um can you speak a bit about the idea of listening and um and that new work well it's it's um it's sort of interesting to talk about the idea of listening because that piece really came about in many ways by listening, first listening to Steve Reich, 
whose composition uh, come out from the mid 60s, I'm forgetting the exact date now, was a response to him listening to testimony uh, from uh, black teenagers who were beaten in Harlem in uh, the early 60s um, and making this composition called Come Out, using their actual testimony, particularly of this kid named Daniel Ham and um, making a tape loop where he's repeating something Daniel Ham says over and over again. Uh, in 1964, uh, there was a disturbance in Harlem and the police picked up these black teenagers and one of them was taken to the police station and beaten and sort of left in his cell, but he was hurt and needed, be, needed to go to a doctor. Mm. So uh, he says what he did was he opened up his bruise to let some of the bruised blood come out to show them that he was hurt. But when you listen to his testimony, which was recorded later, he makes a little slip of the tongue. Instead of saying bruise blood, he says blues blood. Mm. So, but I didn't know any of this story. When I first listened to Steve Reich, the amazing composer, he uses this testimony to make this composition called Come Out. So a very, very famous composition in minimal music where it's basically two tape loops playing at the same time, they get out of sync. And so this phrase, come out to show them. I had to open up, you know, the bruise to let some of the bruised blood come out to show them. Mm -hmm. And he narrows his composition down to the words, come out. But it's on two tape loops and he plays them simultaneously and they get slightly out of sync. And so it becomes this incredibly repetitious patterning of this, come out to show them, come out to show them, come out to show them. And then it's doubled and then it's, quadrupled and so it becomes this sort of noise at the end of the composition. So I'd heard that composition for many, many years without understanding that, you know, the, the testimony in it, you know, the, the tape loop itself is based on this very famous you know, episode in Harlem in 1964, but in a weird way, Reich's piece you know, is more famous than the episode that inspired mm -hmm. it. Right. And so I started to go back and sort of, you know, do some research and found this story about Daniel Ham and him saying, you know, I had to open up the bruise to let some of the bruise blood come up to show them. But then I realized, like, oh, he doesn't say bruise blood. He says blues blood. There's a mm. slip of the tongue. And I began thinking about how the blues and bruising and blood become these, like, conjoined terms, you know. Uh, Ralph Ellison once said the blues was personal catastrophe expressed lyrically. Mm -hmm. So the idea of pain and suffering is is caught up in the blues. And so that sort of yes. slip of the tongue that Robert said, uh, Daniel Hamm makes, I think is really, was really interesting and inspired this piece that has the words in it, you know, blues, blood, bruise, and they blink off and on, sometimes together, sometimes separately in this sort of pattern, like like a small plan, these three words playing with each other, playing off of each other. Um, but the listening part is interesting because, so that's one sense that I was listening, but another part was that, you know, when I first um, was starting to make uh, neon work using these words, um, I made a piece that was similar to it that was shown at Camden Arts Centre in London. Right. 
And Okui saw that show um, and spent a lot of time in the room where this piece was installed and said, Glenn, can your neons be outside? And I didn't know what he meant by that. I was like, well, yeah, neon can be outside, you know, walk down the street, lots of neons outside. But what he meant was, can it be outside on the facade of the main building <laughs> in the Venice Biennale? <laughs> That's what he meant, you know? And to do that meant that I would make a piece that would be the biggest piece I'd ever made in my career. And so really it was listening to Oakwee's ambition for me as an artist that, that, that caused me to make this piece, you know? Sort of him saying like, you need to make a big piece and it needs to be on the front facade of the Italian pavilion in the Giardini for the Biennale, you know? Oakwee's ambition for me, you know, and often I to a friend that, you know, Oakwee sometimes is more ambitious for one as an artist than you were for yourself sometimes. Wow. That's a wonderful thing. This amazing ability to bring out the best in artists, to give them this opportunity. I mean, of course he wanted a giant piece for his show. (laughs) 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 That was a win-win for him, but he also saw this potential. The, a potential that I frankly hadn't seen, you know? And so that's how that piece came about. <clears throat> it's interesting, that idea of potential, because if you think about the resulting work, so it's now, you know, on the facade of the new museum in New York and people are sta- walking on the street, staring up and they see it. Like it does, it's the kind of work that you're immediately going to think, what is that about maybe? Mm-hmm. You know, once you've kind of, you, you look at it maybe as a po- poetic statement, mm-hmm. then you might see it as light or, or words and then you might think, what is it about? So in the sense that it's provoking thought and also will hopefully make people research the story that you're referencing. Um, how important is that within your work? You know, if you think of Steve Reich's audio piece being more famous than the story of, of Daniel, like, it, it, is that something that you've always sort of considered, like the longevity of the work and the, the meanings behind it? Well, I think that, you know, a lot of the work is generated by thinking about texts that have at some point been lost to history. So, for example, I used a lot of texts by a writer of the Harlem Renaissance, Zora Neale Hurston. Mm-hmm. Um, she was buried in an unmarked grave, <laughs> you know. <laughs> you know, so imagine that. You know, one of the most famous writers of the '30s, '40s, '50s, friends with Langston Hughes, and you know, buried in an unmarked grave. You know, why was just, that? Because of poverty, or because of? Her work had gone out of fashion, out of print. Uh, she wasn't making money. Um, she needed to be rediscovered. And so, you know, a writer like Alice Walker rediscovered her, you know, right. Black Studies, you know, Black mm-hmm. Literature rediscovered her in the 70s and 80s. Mm-hmm. And so now Zora Neale Hurston is crucial again, you know. You could say the same thing with Baldwin. You know, Baldwin's very, very, you know, people think we call, we quote Baldwin all the time, James Baldwin, the writer. He's an amazing writer, wrote brilliantly about many, many different subjects. But in the 70s, you know, Baldwin was out of favor, you know. People weren't listening to him as much. He was too nuanced, you know, too gay, <laughs> You know, that work had to be rediscovered in a sense. So I'm always drawn to these things that have have a second or third life, you know, or or by by using them, I'm trying to give them a second and third life. But I must say that, you know, um, when I do lectures sometimes and, you know, I'm talking to young art students 
and they give me blank looks that I thought, you know, use your external hard drive. It's called Google, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But what, but what you're doing by, by drawing, by, by drawing these uh, figures of literature and, and highlighting sections of their writing, you're really bringing information to that work. I mean, I've discovered so much through your work, but you, you've just mentioned James Baldwin, but like Ralph Ellison, Richard Pryor, Gertrude Stein, words that they've spoken, things that they've said that you've then taken uh, and appropriated into your, your uh, paintings and drawings and, and video works is highlights to me stuff information that i had no idea of or just was completely unaware of and that in in you're educating and highlighting things that are so important effortlessly through your artwork well i i i'm flattered you say that but so much effort <laughs> it's a big dumpster <laughs> does it feel like it right yeah <laughs> with a lot of bad work in it you know <laughs> ready right. for on fire. So, um, <laughs> but I think also, you know, as well as highlighting things, I think there's a sense that sometimes you use text to interrogate things, you know, mm. Gertrude Stein, you know, using a phrase from one of her novels uh, called Three Lives. So I use a little phrase that calls called Negro Sunshine. But mm -hmm. if you read that text, you know, the black character that Stein is talking about, it's brutal. <laughs> mm -hmm. it, is, it has no love for black people, you know? So extracting that, those two words, Negro Sunshine, from the context of that novel is a sort of reclamation act, you know? It, it's, yes. it's sort of reading against Stein's, you know, depiction of black humanity in that novel so sometimes it's not about celebrating but also critiquing you know and this was a big neon that ended up at the Whitney as well wasn't it that, uh that it was in my sure it was in my Whitney retrospective show yeah. and um it's been shown a lot yeah there's been like four versions of it haven't there four different incantations exactly. of it yeah exactly. but there was a there was a New York Times I've written a New York Times interview you did and and, and they asked you did you did you put that phrase up to shock and you responded, shock, it's not provocative, it's Gertrude Stein. <laughs> well, I was being cheeky. Yeah, no, I love that, though. Because it, it I makes... didn't like the question. I thought yeah. it was, uh, you know, because it's often asked of artists of colour, is your work meant to be provocative? Like, no, my work is my work. My work is meant to ask questions, to provoke dialogues, you know. I, you know, Jeff Koons is shocking. Yes, the porn photos are shocking. Yeah, aren't they? Porn photos. I'll leave that to him. You know? yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's interesting when you think of like the show you did in LA when you looked at Robert Mapplethorpe's photography and then you, you kind of recontextualized that in a way and, and brought up questions that a lot of people hadn't even considered or had the time to think about by, by also looking at what other people had said um, and critiqued his work. I, I, I do find it, Quite, quite really fascinating because that that was an eye-opener to me because I'd never seen a lot of those photos even you know that whole series that he'd made well there's two there's two practices two um parts of your work that really inspire me and the first one I wanted to talk about was an, an earlier work which was called uh, from a show called to disembark right which was one that I, I when I was researching today came across and I thought it's just incredible about um Henry Box Brown who was a slave who escaped in a crate and then you created from that this installation of nine crates and they apparently when he was found he was escaping and he was singing when he was found and you created these nine crates and there was music in two of the crates and then there were sounds of birdsong and and 
uh, like Breeze in another one, but the songs you chose was Billie Holiday's Strange Fruit and then Sound of the Police, KRS-One, and I, I, the juxtaposition of those two. Can you talk a bit about that installation? Because that's something that I would love to see. And where is that now? Right. Well, yeah, I, I got really interested in uh, Henry Box Brown's story because I saw f- uh, an image of a lithograph of Henry Box Brown being liberated from this crate. And I just, I didn't know anything about the story, you know, um, but I just saw this image and I thought, what is this? And so I, I read his narrative, his autobiography, and it turns out he was uh, a captive in, worked in a tobacco factory in Richmond, Virginia, and became friends with a white um, carpenter who also worked in Richmond and thought of the scheme to escape slavery to ask this carpenter to build a crate and nail him inside of it and mail it to an anti-slavery society in Philadelphia. So we're talking about, you know, a, a sort of three and a half by three by two foot crate, something like that, you know, being mailed, you know, literally, (laughs) but, you know, mailing in the mid 1800s meant, you know, wagon, boat, you know, (laughs) that's what mailing meant. So he was inside this crate for, I think, 30 hours and was, it was mailed to an anti-slavery society in Philadelphia and they opened the crate and and Henry says the first thing he thought of to do was to sing at, at his sort of resurrection, his release from this grave of a crate that he was encased in. And I was really interested in the idea that the idea of music and song and singing was the first thing that came to him and thinking about how important music has been to the African-American experience, you know, um, I, I won't get the exact quote right, but the, the amazing Arthur Jaffa, the filmmaker, says that he wants to make videos that have as much majesty and, and, and brilliance as black music, you know, that black music is, is for him the, the sort of pinnacle expression of African-American culture. And so I was thinking about, you know, Henry Box Brown in this coming to voice, and so I made these nine crates and each of them had a different soundtrack in them. Yeah. One was, you know, Henry's narrative being read. One was KRS-One, Sound of the Police, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, because yeah, it's, it's sort of the idea that, you know, when most people I'd seen who'd done installations or work about slavery sort of put it in the past, you know? It was this terrible thing that happened many, many, many decades ago, you know, centuries ago. <laughs> And I wanted to think about it as something that's not just events in the past, but something that structures American democracy. It is Mm. there when we're writing our constitution. Mm. It is there when our laws are being formed. So it is, you know, it structures the way we live now. It's, it's, we are in its wake, you know. Uh, and so to think about slavery as something that, you know, KRS-One is singing about, mm. Barb Marley is singing about, mm. Holiday is singing about, you know, 
her her song is strange fruit it's about lynching but that lynching comes out of slavery you know the idea that black lives are expendable that black lives have no meaning don't matter you can randomly use people up and then kill them you know so that's what i was thinking about how do you bring the idea that slavery is in the present do we know what happened to him did he like blossom in philadelphia and have a great life and well, I, you know, either the interesting thing about him is that he made his living doing recreations of his escape from slavery. Oh, right. Wow. Think about that for a second. So it's like he can <laughs> never escape. A trauma. It's just like never, it. yeah. Yeah. You know, so besides him, you know, he wrote his autobiography, but he also went around the country doing these reenactments of his his bondage and his freedom. Wow. wow. See, that story is one that I've, you know, that's really important and fascinating and historical, and I've learned that through your work. But the, and the, the other body of work that's really affected me is the children's coloring books. Yes, And how amazing. you went to schools and you gave them these children's coloring books and they had images of Malcolm X in, but they weren't... They weren't wed to any sort of identity politics or any of the discourse about you know racism and history they just took these coloring pictures as something that they could fill in you know and try not to go over the edges of with colored pencils <laughs> yeah or, and, or like queering queering the father figure i love i mean that's yeah, just like beyond I, I mean and that would and, that, and one of them even asked you are you malcolm x it was like they, they looked. They went to it with such an innocence that that really inspired a whole body of work for you. How did you come up with that concept? Well, I I had a residency at the Walker Arts Museum in Minneapolis, and one of the and this was maybe oh god, I'm not even remembering when that was. Um, maybe mid '90s, something like that, or 2000. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the 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 rules around the residency was you had to work with communities within a three mile radius of the museum itself. And Minneapolis is a city with a very, very diverse city. Lots of different kinds of people from all over the world have settled there. Um, But I thought, well, I don't want to sort of say, you know, work with say, you know, refugees from Somalia. I want to define community as, you know, kids, what if I work with kids and define that as the community I was going to work with? And how was I going to work with them? Well, I decided to thought, well, you know, kids love to color. So maybe something about coloring. And at first I was going to, you know, give them images from, I think it was like Rugrats. Remember that? Yeah, of course. <laughs> the cartoon. There were all these coloring books yeah. out, you know, uh, Star Wars and Rugrats, you know, cart, uh, coloring books that I found. And I thought, no, that's uh-huh. too stupid. I can't do that. So I did some research. I went to a library and found these images of 1970s coloring books, so late 60s, early 70s. And they were done by black educators. And what was interesting about them was it's at the moment when there are debates around how to teach African-American history to young kids, you know, young kids color. So why don't you give them images that depict, you know, things that would be in a child's coloring book, you know, a boy swinging on a tire or, you know, a girl combing her hair. Juxtapose that with heroes from black history, Harriet Tubman, Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, you know. But if you think about it, an image of Malcolm X in a children's coloring book in 19... 19- 
68 is kind of quite mm. radical, <laughs> you know? Yeah, this yeah. is not, you know, this is your, you know, old Malcolm X, you know, you know, like Malcolm X, was like called the most dangerous man in America, Malcolm X, not, not the Malcolm X we can buy at the post office on postage stamps, you know? So this yeah. sense of like this radical project that these black educators had to introduce these sort of new, you know, superheroes to kids through these coloring books was super interesting to me. So I gave those images to these kids that I uh, met through uh, daycare centers, after school centers in the Minneapolis area. But I realized that, you know, for these kids, they're just images, you know, they didn't know who Malcolm X was or Martin Luther King, you know, four or five year old, you know. So, of course, they're like, you see a guy with glasses. And, oh, is that you? It's like, no, baby, that's Malcolm X. <laughs> 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 but your drawing with the lipstick and eyeshadow is kind of amazing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I took those images the kids made and showed them at the art museum along with paintings I made based on their images. So it was almost like, you know, kind of commissioning my own source material in a way. Yeah, but it sort of freed you, well, they were freed of the concerns, but it freed you of the concerns. But did you know when you were seeing them that they were going to inspire a whole new body of work? That also was the first time the, the representational figure appears in your practice. Um, no, I didn't know that, but it made sense that I was using images that someone else had drawn, you know, the coloring book images, and then making paintings using the way the kids had drawn on those images. So it, in some sense, you know, because my practice, my practice is all about quotation and using someone else's text, using someone else's image, commenting on Maplethorpe's image, et cetera. You know, so mm -hmm. the idea of like, okay, I'm not going to make drawings of Malcolm X to give to kids to color. There are already images out there. So why don't we use the images that exist already with all the political intentions behind the original and give them to the kids and see what they do with them. Uh-oh, this kid has drawn lipstick on Malcolm X. I know what that means. He doesn't know what that means. Yeah. And, and, and so it was about, in a way, the, the gulf between one historic moment and another, you know, kind of what I knew Malcolm X to be and how important his image was and what those, those original comic books were about versus now, you know? Like, how do we process those images now? What does Malcolm X now you know yeah icons you know someone says in an essay about a, a, the great wayne costume bone says you know icons are, are are there to be made over and over again you know so each generation finds a malcolm x they remake them you know so that's what right. that work was about and there were other images besides malcolm x there were harriet tubman images there were frederick Douglass images and there were you know boys swinging on tire <laughs> yeah yeah, uh, you, totally. but they have like an Andy Warhol Basquiat feel to them as well. Yeah, I am so not Basquiat though. You know, Basquiat really paint, <laughs> and I just copy. You know, I just had to learn how to you know do kids drawing as as well as a kid could do it. You know, and that's hard yeah. work. You know. <laughs> There's an incredible Basquiat in the new museum show at the moment, which I, I've never actually seen before. That's really incredibly moving. Yeah. Where, where is it? What collection was that from, and how did you guys come up with um, that? I've actually seen it at a group show at uh, Jack Shaman Gallery, um, yeah. and it was just stuck with me, you know. So 
when we were thinking about um, grief and grievance, Basquiat was high on Oakley's list of an artist he wanted to include in it. And there was a particular painting he was interested in, um, which was about Michael Stewart, the death of Michael Stewart, who was a graffiti artist in New York who was basically beaten to death by the cops. Uh, so we know that this story is not new. Um, and Basquiat knew him um, and made a painting of Michael Stewart. But that painting had been shown in the sort of well-known shown on the Guggenheim uh, mm. the year before. So we decided to not show that again in Grief and Grievance. But I just remembered, you know, having seen that Basquiat painting, that that might be a great substitute. So... That's kind of where it where it came from. It's an incredible work. So Basquiat is a hero of yours. Is is Andy Warhol? I know that Robert Rauschenberg is as well. Yeah, Rauschenberg. Um, I'm actually on the board of the Rauschenberg Foundation now. So. Oh, wow. <laughs> uh, Warhol certainly. Uh, Basquiat, David Hammonds. I mean, lots of heroes. Yeah. Yeah, and I heard that in '87 uh, you saw a Warhol show. Um, of his shadow paintings, and that you at the time hadn't quite consciously understood what they meant to you, but they kind of always resonated in your mind. Can you speak a bit about the impact of well, that? Well, I think it was, um, yeah, it was in Soho in New York, and there were many firsts on that day. It's the first time I saw Warhol's shadow paintings, the first time mm. I had brown rice. <laughs> <laughs> really? Really? <laughs> I love the fact that you remember Away that. from the South Bronx. We have no brown rice. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. <laughs> All right. So, so, yeah, that was a sort of formative moment. And, you know, what's interesting is sometimes you see things and you don't know what you're looking at and you don't get it, but they stay with you. And that's one of those shows that really, really stayed with me, maybe because it was such a huge installation. And it's up right now at uh, Dia Art Center in Beacon, New York. So oh, yeah. what, what is the work like, the shadow work? There, basically, you know, Warhol had one of his assistants take a couple of photos of shadows of something. Now, there's many speculations about what they're shadows of. Some say it's just a construction of blocks and things. Some say it's a shadow of uh, an erect penis, you know? Mm-hmm. I like that. Lovely. Expert. Yeah, I like that idea as well, yeah. <laughs> but anyway. <laughs> That's a lovely shadow. It's a lovely yeah. shadow. <laughs> <laughs> uh, moving on. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so the paintings are literally of this shadow but a shadow is a thing you know so they look like abstract paintings but they're paintings of this thing which is a shadow so that sort of back and forth between representation and abstraction is super interesting but also warhol takes these images and gives each painting a different color background so they're pink backgrounds or purple backgrounds or gold backgrounds or and so you see, when you see the installation, this incredible line of, you know, dozens and dozens of these paintings of, of I think, two or three images of shadows, but across, like, you know, 90 paintings. And they're spectacular. I mean, Warhol said they were disco decor, you know? It's like, <laughs> and they're very, so like, good. they're very sexy and very beautiful colors and, you know, they're very attractive paintings, but conceptually they're super, super interesting. Like, yeah. and- Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. 
From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com And the shadow plays into your work because of uh, the neons. I feel like I, whenever I see your neons, especially America, mm. which is up at the Whitney, when you go and buy your ticket for the Whitney, it's literally behind the registers there. But the, the shadow that the neon creates or the space behind the neon, mm. or the, the way that conceptually that works, it feels like the shadow is as important as what we are first assuming is the neon right. we're told to see. Yeah, I mean, I'm always interested in, uh, you know, eclipse light. That's kind of where this has all come from. And, and there's a sort of funny origin story about all of my neons, which is um, the neon guy that makes all my neons, uh, he had a studio in the same building that I'm in, where my studio currently mm-hmm. is. And I walked by his shop every day because he was on the ground floor and just, you know, hi, wave, you know, <laughs> but I don't make neon, you know. <laughs> so I'd walk by his shop. We, this went on for two or three years. And one day he was just outside doing something. He's like, oh, you want to come in and have a look around? And I'm like, yeah, sure. But I don't make neon. <laughs> you know, I'll come <laughs> yeah. look around. So he's showing me the stuff that he makes. And he makes a lot of different kinds of things. He makes work for artists, but he also makes work for commercial things like, you know, Disney or Apple or whatever. So they were working on a piece for Burberry's a window display and it was stripes and you know Burberry's plaid has a black stripe in it and he said oh there's an interesting story behind that because the art director said okay we want you know our plaid in neon and Matt said well there's a black stripe. Black is the absence of light. And the art director said, that's, that's not my problem. You figured that out. <laughs> and what Matt did was take a white neon tube and just paint it black on the front. So it reads as a black line, but also reads as white neon because the light is coming out from behind. So when he showed me the mock-up for that, you know, Burberry sign, and started talking about this black light, I thought, Oh, we are so ready to go. <laughs> you know? yeah. And wow. that's where the Negro sunshine came from. You know, white neon tubes painted black on the front. So they're both black and white at the same time. The light comes out the back, mm. but they're also kind of in shadow, eclipsed, because you see that black line. So a lot of my work came out of that kind of funny, you know, Exchange. Black is the absence of light. You know, what about black neon? I remember saying to Matt, and he told me this story, and I thought, wow. wow. He must love you now. He must be like, result. <laughs> together for 20 years, so I guess. Wow. <laughs> I always remember seeing the, the your, your paintings as well, and with the glitter, 
on them and then how, how they reflect. And I remember being really struck by them without even knowing the context of what the meaning is behind the work, if that makes sense. Just the texture, like more, more yeah. on a kind of like wonder mm. level, like on a kind of, I remember feeling a kind of joy, oh. like looking at them because they're so, they are so pleasing right. in a way. And um, yeah, and it's, just, it's an interesting illusion it creates in a, in a sense, because it's a bit like what Russ was talking about, the, the way it can all appear like it's effortless, but in fact, it, it's not, it's this ongoing, you know, rigorous kind of exploration yeah. into it all. but like I, I think that is quite interesting the way that your work has that kind of element of joy in it that, that people can access if you know what I well, mean well I always find it's like you're unawares what you're being told it's like there's there's a narrative in there there's a story in there there's history I always think of like David Wanarovich when he did his stencils is that yeah. like the burning house you see the burning house and it's all ended up on like we had it as a, a flyer for our our show he was doing last year on Broadway, who was afraid of Virginia Woolf, but it was on apparel, yeah. it's on pencil cases, but you don't realise that what you're actually witnessing is a piece of gay history, is a piece of queer, like, authentic life lived. But it's kind of like a Trojan horse. It gets in there and you don't realise. And that's, that's what I'm saying, about, we're saying about your work, and everybody, like, that's why your work is so important, because it is like this Trojan horse, is that you're seeing something very beautiful, and then you realise... The connotations behind it. Well, I think beauty is always a hook for me. You know, it's the it's the mm. first thing that engages someone. Is you know, when I go into a museum, I'm attracted to beautiful things. You know, I just go, and then the right. meaning later on. You know, and I, you know, what I think is beautiful is different than what other people think are beautiful. You know, I think Donald Judds are beautiful because they're precise. Yes. You know, other people just see like you know just a piece of metal you know shaped into a box you know but there's a kind of precision and rigor about that that i find quite beautiful you know um but i also like basquiat was an amazing amazing painter you know just stand in front of also i guess also you know like sometimes he made ugly things too you know um yeah, that's totally. that's super interesting that what you know we used to consider ugly is now quite beautiful. De Kooning's, think about like de Kooning paintings, you know, when they first started showing in the 50s, I'm sure people were like, what is all this oh, ugly stuff? What's ugly? Pollock, yeah. Pollock made people right. so angry. It still does make people right. angry. But you, <laughs> start, you started off painting like abstract expressionists. Yeah, exactly. That was your, that's how you first yeah. started. Well, actually, when you first started, you started doing pottery classes as a kid. Can we go that far back? That was your first <laughs> access into the art world. <laughs> In the South Bronx. Oh, yeah. Well, those pottery classes were in Greenwich Village. So, you know, I got um, got to go after school. Yeah, that was the funny thing. My mom was, you know, her famous line to me was, you know, why you want to be an artist? All the artists I know of are dead, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and she met Picasso and Matisse. Like, well, yes, in fact, they are dead. It's true, you know? But I still want to be an artist. And if you didn't want me to be an artist, then why would you send me the pottery classes in Greenwich Village and after-school drawing classes at the Metropolitan Museum. You know, this wow. was a single mother, you know. We were living in the South Bronx, but she thought that learning about art made you a good citizen. And so she, wow. you know, doled out this money for me to go have art experiences, even though the idea of me actually wanting to be an artist was kind of bizarre to her, you know. But I and she saw you succeed. She saw yeah. you like have museum yeah. shows. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and she was well, right. <laughs> you know, 
Not about the dead art. <laughs> about, um, yeah. about art, art making you a good citizen. Yeah, but I mean, I think there is a connection between art and citizenship. I have a good friend, Stephen Andrews, a dear painter friend of mine, and he says, you know, I often call myself a citizen because when I call myself an artist, people don't know what that means. But when I call myself a citizen, he uses one's art to express one's citizenship you know, citizenshipness. you know, uh, think about what it means to be a citizen through the art, then people understand what I mean, you know, that artists yeah. have this role, you know, in society, you know, to look at it carefully and express stuff about it and express difficult stuff about it often, you know, as well as beautiful things, you know. Yeah. I I really like this idea of you growing up in the Bronx as well and being surrounded by kind of culture everywhere you looked, like in the sense of things that people didn't necessarily think were culture because they weren't somehow um, highbrow enough or something because they were on the walls of trains or, you know, or on street corners like graffiti and, and how I, I never even knew this artist, but Lady right. Pink, the American graffiti artist who's just extraordinary. And I've spent a lot of time today looking at her work and I'd never seen it before, but like, and how that subconsciously has influenced your interest in text and, um, and also like obviously music that you were surrounded by just growing up like the importance of, of all of that. Right. Well. Except that my mama was not letting me outside with those hoodlums. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> you know, what was her line? Uh, out there scratching up perfectly good records. And what she meant was like, you know, African Bombada playing in the parking lot downstairs, like scratching up perfectly good records. You're not going outside. You need to study. <laughs> wow. <laughs> it's sort that. of like the idea that the streets were dangerous, but you know, I grew up in the South Bronx. It, this is where it was all happening, you know. But yeah. in some ways, I wasn't allowed, you know, quote unquote, to be out there because she was trying to, like, get me up out of there rather than, like, realizing, like, no, 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 that's where it was. So when people asked me, like, oh, my God, you grew up in the South Bronx? And I was like, yeah, I missed it. <laughs> you know? I really yeah. I heard it. <laughs> you know? When did you first... <laughs> When did you first uh, like uh, witness Richard Pryor? Because he is his his words have played into your text pieces. He's had a video work that you've made of him. He feels very important to you. Oh, I first heard it because I had older cousins, uh, and so uh, I had cousins that lived in D.C., uh, Washington D.C. My grandparents lived there. And so when we go every summer, my brother and I to visit my cousins, you know, because they were older, they had their own money. So they could buy whatever albums they wanted to. So we would get our cousins to play the Richard Pryor records that my mother wouldn't let me buy because Richard Pryor was too nasty and too grown and all those curse <laughs> words and no, you know. So we'd go up to my cousin's bedroom and put the stereo on real low. <laughs> <laughs> so the adults wouldn't hear you know the adults were downstairs drinking or whatever they were doing and we yeah. put on the Richard Pryor so that's what so I must have been you know 13 14 listening to Richard Pryor records and they were too grown too nasty but he made a huge impression on me you know uh, when did it enter your work it entered my work I think in the early 90s you know making joke paintings um mm. Because I just loved, you know, I loved his speech, you know, like, because you were listening to a comedy album, you were listening to someone talk, you know, and so I got really interested in the idea of 
instead of quoting literature, you know, Zora Neale Hurston, Toni Morrison, et cetera, why not quote speech, you know? Why not put speech into the painting? So that was one of the, you know, sort of uh, things that I was interested in making joke paintings using Richard Pryor jokes, but also those jokes were like, they were deeply political and funny, mm. you know? at the same time you know and they were full of words you couldn't really say put in public spaces like the n-word and the b-word and Mm. you know all the (laughs) all the letter words (laughs) yeah but you stenciled these uh onto and the the stenciling has been uh through a constant throughout your practice you never really see your own handwriting it's always kind of the stenciled letter but you would stencil these jokes onto kind of really beautiful gold canvas. So again, it has this kind of appealing quality to it where you want to go close to it, and then you do read the jokes, and some people must have been, you know, taken affront by that. Oh, yeah. Well, I remember uh, uh, showing in uh, Thelma Golden's uh, exhibition, Blackmail, which is at the really important mm-hmm. exhibition at the Whitney Museum in 1994, um, and we had a couple of Richard Pryor joke paintings in there. And I had a friend who was working as a museum guide mm-hmm. and he was doing a tour and the paintings aren't so big and he had a big group and not all of them could see what he was talking about. And, you know, being a good art historian, he was talking about issues of narration and voice and text as art. And from the back, he said someone started saying, read the joke. <laughs> Because they couldn't literally, you know, see what. See it. Yeah. But the joke has the N word in it. And Richard, my friend, was white, didn't feel comfortable reading the joke. And, but it kept coming up read the joke. And the audience was like a lot of black folks because the show was called Blackmail. So it had a black audience. And finally, he said someone came to the front and kind of shoved him to the side, read the joke out loud, and all hell broke loose because. Why is all this negativity and curse words on the walls of the Whitney Museum? And someone else would say, don't you like Richard Pryor? Like, yeah, I love Richard Pryor at home, not on the museum walls. And so this idea of like what can be said and enjoyed in private versus what what was being, you know, aired in public, the dirty laundry, you know. And Do you like that challenge, though? Do you like that that, oh, that comes out? it was fascinating because on several levels. One, because, like, that's what artists do, air the dirty laundry, but also the right. idea that the, the museum professional is pushed aside and the audience member comes up and then they have this debate in front of the painting. That's yeah, it's incredible. That's amazing. That's remarkable. And you were talking about Thelma Golden. You you came up with a term, post blackness. Ooh. <laughs> is this, no, we don't. This no is something good that you, term goes unpunished. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that, that was something that you conceived together. Is that something that. Yeah. I mean, it was sort of um, me trying to find a way to talk about artists who I think were, I think, trying to. Dis- describe a generational split between artists of my generation or an earlier generation who had a certain notion about how blackness could be, should be, could be portrayed and seen, and a younger generation that just didn't come with those kinds of assumptions uh, on many different levels, that blackness needed to be figurative, that blackness needed to uh, address the community, in quotes, you know, air quotes. Uh, 
mm-hmm. uh, that there were you know proper ways to address black folks and improper ways to address it. And just noticing that there is a generation of artists, and here I was talking about people like Julie Morettu or Mark Bradford or, you know, who are quite famous, well-known names now. Um, But thinking about, like, how deeply invested their work was in Black culture, but Mm. also deeply invested in abstraction and materiality and all these other issues uh, and so my sort of jokey shorthand for them is like, you know, to Thelma, it's like, oh, another show with all your post-Black children, you know, in it. And it's sort of stuck as a way to describe this sort of generational shift. And it's funny to me when you say things like that and they turn into things that are out in the world that people cite and write dissertations about or whatever. Because you said it quite offhand. You said it quite like... Yeah, in some ways offhand, but Thelma's brilliance is to recognize that that's a useful term, you know, yeah. and mm. to sort of, you know, bring it into to the discourse, you know, in a productive way and let other people run with it, debate it, etc. you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> you know, there's... I, I heard you speaking before about this idea of unofficial Glenn and official Glenn. So the idea that like the works from the 80s are maybe prior to the work that you became well known for in a sense. And when you were still making like abstract expressionist kind of influenced uh, paintings. And I really loved the one that got included in the retrospective you had that has um, text from kind of gay porn magazines. I think it says, I don't really know why is the first (laughs) sentence um, in in, in that one. The way that you've got like a very explicitly kind of abstract or abex kind of um, gesture at the bottom of the painting and then text at the top. And it got me thinking a lot about your later work when you were using stencils like Russell just referenced, where you were doing it on the doors in um, in PS1 when you were there. And you, you had the text that kind of starts off very clear and then as it goes on, it disintegrates and kind of becomes abstract. And I, I think that is a really fascinating part of your work. You know, you're talking about this um, offhand kind of post-black artists who were making abstraction, um, whereas your work had kind of text within it. But I, I think you do cross this kind of, this territory of like, uh, where words are present, but also they become disintegrated mm. in a sense. Manipulated you, in some ways. Right. Yeah. And also that kind of reposi- repetition and persistence. I love those two particular words yeah. in, in that context I heard you say mm. before. Can you speak a bit about that? Yeah, I, well, those earlier things are kind of like, you know, the pre-Glenn works, you know, because everyone thinks, you know, my work is black and white text paintings. But there's work that's yeah. before that that uses quotation, like all my text paintings do. But the quotation was from, like, porn magazines, you know, stories from porn magazines scrawled in pencil into these kind of abstract expressionist feels. So that was my transition from, like, oh, I'm a fifth-generation abstract expressionist to, oh, I'm an artist that uses text. That was the sort of line between them when I was trying to figure out, like, how do I incorporate... It's funny to say it, you know, I'm laughing because I was, like, going to say, how do I incorporate the things I was reading into my work? I was like, yeah, I was sitting at home reading porn magazines. Like, how do I... (laughs) And then highlighting the sections you enjoyed. Yeah, right, got it. Art. (laughs) I work... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> which I guess <laughs> makes more sense if you're talking about, you know, a text quoting, 
you know, Zora Neale Hurston or Ralph Ellison or whatever. (laughs) But the earlier work was, yeah, from from those porn magazines. And it was a really a way, you know, and and we were talking before about me not using my handwriting. Those were in my handwriting. So, right. But I, uh, but they, but they weren't my text, you know. Like so, they were using my handwriting. So one would assume, oh, that's Glenn writing this text. But they were yeah, like diaristic or something. There. Yeah. And and I moved to stencils because I didn't want that element in it. You know, like I didn't want people to think like, oh, that's Glenn writing. It's like, no, that's James Baldwin. <laughs> Glenn can't write like that. You know. But also, I was interested in obviously artists like. Jasper Johns had used stencils, you know, yeah. way of distancing, you know. Right, it acts as a distance, distance to stencil. Myself and the text that was being used was important there. And, um, you know, in terms of like text starting out clear and disappearing in those early paintings, you know, the, often I find that the problem I'm trying to solve is the best part of the work. So the problem I was trying to solve is like, how do you make, paintings using stencils and paint and not make them all messy because if you put oil paint through stencils it's all messy the letters don't keep their shape you you know so i spent a lot of time trying to figure out how to make them clean and nice and then i realized oh the fact that they make all these messy marks and they kind of smudge and smear is the most interesting thing (laughs) and often i find like the mistakes, you know, the things I'm trying to like get rid of often become the things that are the most important things, you know. Right. Where But you use oil was, stick, don't you? As well yeah. like the oil paint you end up yeah, oil, oil stick. stick yeah. yeah, which is basically like, you know, using a giant oil crayon through a stencil. But the oil picks up on the back of the stencil, so you, you make a letter with oil paint, you move the stencil over, make another letter, but the oil paint from the first letter smudges when you're trying to make the second letter. And that's what I was trying to fix. And then I realized, like, no, 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 don't fix that. That's the work. And it's such a nice connection to Reich, like we were talking about earlier about the sound piece, where the the samples end up kind of merging and becoming a noise. Like, I always think of that kind of work you make as a visual representation of that somehow. Or, yeah, or or, or even um, someone that I know you admire, uh, Felix Gonzalez-Torres, like Russell's favourite piece of the two Mm. clocks that are slightly out of sync with each other. And that show you did in um, Nottingham that you curated that had his work in it. Um, but like I don't know, it's interesting to somehow have been able to encapsulate that in a visual context. You know, a bit you like know, Robert, context. you're very clever because it took me literally decades to realize that Steve Reich's composition "Come Out" had some relationship to my work. <gasps> it seems so obvious now, but it literally took me decades. Like, wait, he's quoting a text. It goes to abstraction through repetition. Hello, <laughs> that's my work, yeah. you know? But, it, yeah. but is there a double meaning with the title, come out as well? No, 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 no. I mean, there is for me. <laughs> that's what I mean for you personally. Is that like... Autobiographic. Is, the, is there like the queer kind of phrase come out? Yeah, you know. that's the slippery, you know, slipperiness of language that uh, those yeah, meanings exactly. always, there's always other meanings, you know? Yeah. No, and that's also different depending on who's yeah. viewing it. Because for me and Russell, we're both queer. So when we see that, that's the first thing we think. Yeah. Probably. Oh, you're going to be coming out. It's fascinating, <laughs> so, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Language. 
Can I quickly say one more thing? So Russell referenced your ceramics when you were a kid, and there was a show you did in Tokyo, and I never knew this body of work until we researched this episode, but the moon jars oh, yeah. and, and that body of work. Can you speak a bit about that? Because I'd never even knew I you did that, that, kind of yeah. the sculptural um, Yeah, there was, um, um, I'll give you the short version of it. They were yeah, a long yeah, time in gestation, but I had a show maybe seven, almost eight years ago in Tokyo at this fantastic gallery called Rat Hole, a little yeah. tiny gallery. Um, and the the people that ran it, Caroline Elder and uh, Osamu Wataya, um, we just kind of like, you know, got along really well. And um, so much so that... Uh, when they had a son, Luca, his middle name is Glenn. <laughs> really? Yeah. Wow. So, um, so anyway, so I did a show with them maybe eight years ago, and we just kind of fell in love with each other. And I fell in love with Luca when he was born. And um, so every year I'd go to Japan to visit or they would come to New York. And we got really interested in Japanese ceramics. Um, and started visiting, you know, the Raku Museum in Kyoto and things like that. Um, And sort of over time got the idea that maybe I'd want to make ceramics. But the form that I was particularly interested in was not Japanese, it was Korean. These things called moon jars, these big white porcelain jars. Uh, Incredible, incredible works. Um, But we found a ceramicist in Japan who's Korean born, but lived in Japan for 30 years and made moon jars. And so uh, it took us about two years, you know, of working back and forth with him, um, trying to persuade him that he could make black moon jars, you know, which is the opposite of the work he was making, uh, making him use different clay, you know, different glazes. me kind of directing, you know, sometimes going to Japan to, you know, see the things directly as they were being made and sometimes just looking at images and saying like, oh, that one's nice, um, but why don't we try more, you know, this pigment? Why don't you try firing at a higher temperature? Why don't, you know, but also realizing that when you're collaborating with someone, they have a way of doing things, um, and they go for perfection, but I wasn't interested in perfection. So he showed me one day this pot he had made that sort of partially collapsed, and he was going to throw it on the trash heap. And I was like, that's the best one you've made. But I couldn't <gasps> say that to him, because then he would start trying to make what he thought I wanted, rather than right. experimenting, you know? So this is, I find collaboration really interesting, because it's always this tricky back and forth working with fabricators when they think that they know what you want and that's when that yeah. isn't good. It's like, no, I want the accident. <laughs> how did you how did you navigate that and make a, a show of them then? Did, did just, you just he must have seen all the accidents in the show and thought, what? <laughs> I'm sure he was mortified, but you know, I was we just sort of like psyched him out actually. I was like, no, 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 just keep everything. We'll sort it out later. You know, I was like, the one I like yeah. the best is the one you, you were about to throw out, you know. <laughs> Um, But yeah, we just kept making them until it got enough so I thought they could be a show and showed them about a year or so ago, a little bit more than a year ago in Tokyo Rat Hall. uh, The gallery is since uh, closed. They're on to other projects, but we're going to show them in New York, you know, sooner or later. 
was super, super fun to sort of work on and got me thinking about a lot of other projects. But it's also, you know, thinking about them, they are in a way quotation, you know, in a way they're akin to other things that I've done in that they're taking a form that exists and using it in a different way, making black moon jars mm. instead of white ceramic, you know, white porcelain moon mm. jars, you know. Uh, so taking this form and tweaking it or pushing the idea of what it can be. Yeah. I've always loved the title moon jar as well. There's something so kind of simple yeah. and poetic about Space. it, like moon jar. Yeah. It sounds like, you know, it somehow encapsulates or protects the yeah. universe or something. I me. think like it sounds like Star Trek. It's always it's it just, felt yeah. like where they keep their kind of vibes. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I, get, I really hope I get to see that series because yeah, I didn't same. even know you'd done that and they're, they're, they're fascinating same. and beautiful objects. Yeah. So. I've got a serious question okay. for you, Glenn. I want to talk about something. Um, your Gap adverts and uh, appearing in the J. Crew catalogues. Yeah. What's that about? Oh, that's all about <laughs> charity, Russell. Come on. <laughs> oh, is it? <laughs> yeah, the, uh, the Gap was making donations to various charities. So you gave right, them an right. image for your T-shirt and uh sat for the ad yeah that t-shirt is particularly that ad is embarrassing because i got the t-shirt pulled over my head and it was on billboards and i i hate being photographed and so the photographers were very good but oh yikes hate being photographed well we we ask every guest two questions um one of those questions is russ uh, if you could do an art heist, Glenn, if you could have any work of art in the world, whatever it is, from wherever, what would it be and why? Oh, my God. Um... <laughs> we can help you as well. We can bring trucks or cranes. Because or you collect, don't you? you collect I do antiques. collect. I would say, you know, high on top of my wish list right, right now, and I'm just putting this out in the universe, is a Basquiat head drawing. He did amazing drawings of head on paper. I'd take a painting too, but I think that the paper ones are particularly beautiful. <laughs> so, uh, you know, if, if the universe wants me to have one, it's out in the world now. So definitely. Wow. Good times. <laughs> Who else do you collect? Um, it, Who else have you got? Uh, do you have any Basquiat? I have... Uh, Let's see, uh, David Hammonds, uh, Beaufort Delaney. Um, ooh, uh, David Hammonds. <laughs> when I can afford. Um, let's see, I would love a Twombly. I would love a de Kooning. Uh, I'm just going mentally through my head. Zoe Leonard. Um, yeah. That's a hard question. I'm blanking, but, you know, I basically collect well, things that I feel like I can learn from, you know, or yeah. I'm jealous of. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really grateful, actually, to you because you mentioned in a lecture that you gave about Downtown 81, the film um, which Basquiat features in. And I used to hang out a bit with Maripol, who was part mm. behind that that film she was a stylist and photographer or whatever in the 80s but um i totally forgotten about that film and that film had such a big impact on me way before i even really realized i was right. into art it's such an extraordinary film and a kind of document of new york yeah. at that time it's in super like interesting to see that period because that's the period i grew up in you know i was in new york in the 80s yeah. i'd 
moved to, you know, to Brooklyn then, you know, another one of those things. My mother's like, why are you moving to Brooklyn? It's dangerous. Like, uh, we live in the South Bronx, (laughs) which is considered the most dangerous neighborhood in the world. So I think I'll be fine in Fort Greene, but whatever. (laughs) Again, she didn't know anyone. We didn't know anybody there. So it was all about like proximity to folks who got your back, you know. But yeah, New York was a very interesting place at that moment, you know. Um, And it's interesting to think about, you know, Basquiat, you know, the graffiti crews that he ran with, you know, and how they influenced his work, you know. Uh, He he ran with a crew. He didn't run solo, you know. And so that's super interesting. You see that in in those movies, you know. Yeah, definitely. Did Richard Pryor ever know that you were using his words for work and everything was he aware of it um you know somebody said that he knew a little bit about my work but i don't he didn't he, i don't think he was alive when i started right. doing those paintings right, so right, right. yeah um but i would love to have met him yeah absolutely my god <laughs> there was that generation just of like comedians that just changed the game yeah exactly yeah. The other question we ask every guest is a very simple one. What is your favorite color? Well, I guess the obvious one would be black, but really, <laughs> I've got a lot of blue. You know, this is a, a, a Delma wrote an essay once for a catalog, and she talked about, you know, the thing that we call each other on the phone and talk about men shopping and the art world, not necessarily in that order. And she's like, yeah, I can just picture Glenn buying another blue shirt. And it's true. <laughs> you have a lot of blue shirts. Kind of blues, you know, endless varieties of blue. So. Is there a particular shade of blue that you like? I like dark blue, you know, not, not navy, kind of darker almost you know blue black that was the that was the name of an exhibition i curated for the pulitzer foundation in st louis blue black so yeah things in that range what are you reading right now oh my god another hard question Um, (laughs) sorry we've got j crew he's reading the netflix inventory yeah (laughs) oh my god what am i reading right now uh afro pessimism that's the book I'm reading um, by James Wilderson. Uh, though it's a headbanger, so I got to read it slowly. Uh-huh. Mm. Amazing. Great. <laughs> and for someone who's got such a sort of, you've had this very um, strong long term kind of career, you know, longevity, I guess. Right. And um, what, what advice would you give to young artists? Only because we get asked a lot on Instagram by, by a lot of the young artists can you ask, you know, some of these leading artists what, what advice you would give? to a younger artist or your younger self even? Well, first of all, let me correct. Frank Wilderson. Um, (laughs) Got his name wrong. Uh, Afro-pessimism, amazing book. But younger artists, um, I would say that one, this might sound harsh, but it's kind of true. Nobody cares as much about your work as you do. So you Mm got to really care about what you're putting out in the world. and you gotta sweat all the details, you know? Because I cannot tell you how many times I thought, oh, we'll just let that go. And then you go to the museum and it's hanging upside down, you know? No. <laughs> Literally. Literally. You know? Oh my God. Do you find was- it hard to, to, to <laughs> sell work? Is that, do you feel quite attached to everything you make? Mm, 
No, I want the work to circulate because it's about ideas. So the object is just a way to circulate ideas. Uh, You know, things I've certainly kept because I find, well, that's another thing I would say for younger artists, keep the things that are generative of new possibilities in your own work. Because sometimes people think like, because you can sell something, you should. I'm like, no, 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 no. I went to a show of uh, Jasper Johns uh, at a gallery here in New York, and I just looked at the labels and so many of them were a collection of the artists. And I was like, okay, he knew from the beginning, keep him, keep important work, keep important work. Cause the $5 somebody's going to give you for that painting. Now you will regret that for the rest of your life. Cause at a certain point, you know, I mean, I'm at the point where I can't afford to buy back my own work, you know? And do you from auctions and stuff? I can't afford it. Oh, you can't afford it can't afford it so i think there there are things that i wish i'd kept and there certainly are some things that i kept you know from early on but there are a lot more things i wish i had kept does that blow your mind though that you your practice now the work you put out that you can't afford to buy back yourself (laughs) yeah it's bizarre it's bizarre but but again it's not for me you know i'd still be doing this if i were if we were just like piles of stuff in the basement I'd still be making the work, you know, I'm just, you know, fortunate that the work circulates in the world and people respond to it. And, you know, scholar friends write about it and people go see it in various places. So I feel like it's kind of amazing, you know, I'm I'm getting a little teary just thinking about, you know, my mom (laughs) and her kind of like, why do you want to be an artist? But she kind of set this all up for me you know anyway that's amazing so what's next so we've got the grief and grievance show uh is that runs until the 6th of june yes and then what what, where can we see your work Uh, next next shows are both with hauser and worth gallery Uh, you signed with last year right uh 2019 2019 yeah uh zurich in september of next year and then uh, New York in November. I'm oh, sorry, this year. Oh my God! Yikes. This year, 2021. This, yeah, 21. See, I was given so November my... this year yeah. at Hauser and Worth in New York. <laughs> yeah, end of this year, Hauser and Worth in New York, and uh, September in Zurich and Hauser and Worth. And you're making that work <laughs> now, right? You're... Oh yes, <laughs> yes, I am making that work now. So can't wait. Can't wait. Wishing you all the best for yes. that. And I really hope we get to come to New York to your opening. Oh, I hope so too. But hopefully by November we'll be Or able you come to the UK us. because you've had so many things here in the UK with the Camden Arts Centre mm. and we talk about Nottingham. It feels like the UK is quite important to you. And yeah, actually, yeah. I, well, I guess we live in the UK, don't we? But I was yeah. about to say, I first discovered your work through Juro Alawu and also um, Laurie Fitz. Oh, yeah. Very close friend. Yep. They were the two people that kept mentioning your work to me <laughs> that initially made me look at yeah. your work about eight years ago or so. Yeah, Duro amazing designer but also an amazing curator i and laurie an amazing collector and friend so great i always think of london as like intellectual boot camp when i first started coming (laughs) to london you know um in the early 90s i met people like isaac julian and stewart hall and you know i just thought oh my god it's like boot camp (laughs) we are just so far behind all all this stuff in new york you know i better get myself in shape (laughs) you know Wow. So London has amazing. a special, you know, place in my heart. 
Oh, well, I can't oh, wait till we can go there and you can come here. Yeah, Stuart Hall, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> Having dinner with Stuart Hall, you know? I was like, oh, this is how it works over here. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Oh, New York. Well, thank you so yeah, much. Thank you, <laughs> it's right. been such a privilege thank to you talk to you. So much. Thank yeah, you so please much stick around because we've got to right. upload this. But for everyone listening, go to our talk art page and we can put up images of what we've been talking about today. Glenn, are you on Instagram? Is it you on social media? Yeah, Instagram under my own name. Wow. <laughs> I know, bizarre. Do you enjoy Instagram? Is that something you embrace? Uh, well, for the first couple of months, I've just put, put up pictures of cute owls and like bunnies. Love owls. Once I you had to pick a theme. And people were like, oh, somebody hacked your name and is using it because they're just pictures of owls. I'm like, that's me. <laughs> Why owls? Because I'm obsessed with owls. Well, I've been talking a lot about it recently. The emoji owl is my favorite emoji. <laughs> well, if you go back in my first post, it's all like turtles and owls and bunnies. Yes. Glenn. And then I started Love posting this. about, you know, stuff that I saw that I liked. So. Cool. And you can also visit uh, glennligonstudio.com. And the new um, museum. you will see an incredible archive there of work yep. and um, installations. Mm. And thank you to the new museum. Yes. And we'll be back very soon. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks. Stick around, Glenn. Bye. Cheers. Bye, Glenn. Okay. Bye. You've been listening to Talk Art with Robert Diamond and Russell Toby. Follow us on Instagram at Talk Art, where you can view images of all artworks discussed in today's episode, with music by Jack Northover. Subscribe to Talk Art at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. Give us a rating and write us a comment. Thanks for listening. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com.